0: What we have been doing for the last uh, several weeks and months is looking at the names of Christ. And I thought that since we're uh, moving into a new year that we start a new study. And uh, the names of Christ can never be exhausted. I think we hit about ten of them. There's probably 50, or about 40 left, but we'll come back to that at some point. Um, But I thought we'd do, I was reading the book of Romans um, over the Christmas holiday. And as I read it, I was just—I'm you know, so struck with how much in the Book of Romans uh, it affects every area of our life. And it may take us till retirement to go through all the Book of Romans, and we may take breaks from time to time. But I thought uh, if we start poking our way through it, that might be a real blessing for us to uh, uh, to take a look at it more or less verse by verse and take it slow, and not hurry. And uh, it's it's a book that has had a major effect on believers. Uh, throughout history, uh, there's a little little uh, commentary I have from Donald, from uh, Donald Barnhouse, who uh, has this to say about some of the how the book of Romans has affected um, a couple other believers in the past. Martin Luther was one, uh, Wesley was one, and Augustine was one. Uh, he writes, "We know, of course, that the complete transformation in the life of Martin Luther came when the verse, "The just shall live by faith," laid hold upon his heart from the reading of the first chapter of Romans. We know that Wesley felt his heart strangely warmed in that little London prayer meeting in Aldersgate when the truths of Romans were being set forth. These indications of the power of the word of God and working through the doctrines taught in Paul's greatest epistle should awaken our attention and lead us to see that time spent in their study will be worthwhile. Uh, Luther wrote, The epistle to the Romans is the true masterpiece of the New Testament and the very purest gospel which is well worth and deserving that a Christian man should not only learn it by heart word for word but also that he should daily deal with it as the daily bread of men's soul. It can never be too much or too well read or studied and the more it's handled the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. That's Luther's view of the book of Romans. He thinks we should... Read it daily, meditate on it, and think it and learn it word by word. And then this last church father, Chrysostom, used to have the book of Romans read to him twice a week. And so um, with all that by way of introduction, uh, I think that if we start poking through the book of Romans, it will really benefit all of us. And so that's kind of where we're going to be going. Um, you can write some of this down if you're interested, but whenever you look at a new book, what we'd like to do is, is examine it uh, with three or four things in mind in the beginning. Uh, we, want to, we do this whether we're doing Romans or Galatians or any book in the Bible. We want to know who the author is. Uh, we want to know what the culture was like when the book was written. Uh, we want to know who the recipients of the letter are. Uh, we want to know the purpose of the book. And we want to know if there's any big theme, if there's any scripture in particular that gives us a theme for the entire book. And we'll see that here in Romans uh, here in a minute. I'll go, so go ahead and open to Romans one. And uh, the, uh, there's no dispute as to who the author is. And why would that be? From Romans one, one, we know what? Letter of Paul. <laughs> <laughs> First uh, word is Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And he calls him, says so he's called to be an apostle, and he's set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, so there's no dispute that Paul wrote the book of Romans, and we accept that because the book of Romans says that. Um, so and Paul immediately identifies himself as a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. But we know that it, Paul's life wasn't always like that. And I know that most of you might be familiar with... Uh, Paul's life before he became a Christian, but I thought it'd be really good to do a little mini review uh, so that we know just make sure that all of us are aware of what Paul was like before he became a Christian. Uh, when you think of Paul, what's what's when you Paul? What was Paul before he became a Christian? The one word that would identify him the most: the zealous. Persecutor. persecutor, zealous. Two two big ones. Is his what organization was he involved with? Who who is he linked to in terms of religion? Almost. Pharisees. Pharisees. Yeah, Pharisees, yeah. Paul, we know he's a Pharisee. So if Paul's a Pharisee, then we know that he's going to be conservative, holding to the strict traditions that have been passed down. Uh, in fact, if you go over to Acts 22 for a minute, Acts 22, um, Paul uh, is giving his testimony in front of the Jews, and he's telling them how Jewish he really was. He's right, he's identifying with his audience. Explaining to them, "Hey, I'm just like you. I was trained the way you are. I was brought up the way you are, and I believed exactly the way you did before the Lord Jesus saved him." In Acts 22, in verse three, Paul writes, "I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of law of the law of our fathers." being zealous for God as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. That's Paul's testament about himself, the fact that he was a, a zealous Pharisee and taught at the feet of Gamaliel. Um, Gamaliel is actually, his name is mentioned in other first century documents where uh, I suppose if we said that uh, there was a gentleman who was schooled at at the best teachers at Harvard, or Yale, or Princeton, and Paul was educated uh, by the one rabbi who was the best of the best, so to speak. And there's another part of Acts where Paul actually says that he was advancing in Judaism beyond his peers. So you have the best mentor and the best pupil uh, as far as what Paul was before he became a Christian. He he would be considered an Old Testament scholar. He certainly would have known the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And he was taught in the strictest sense of the law. And he would have been, as best he could, uh, a works-based law keeper. Um, Now the problem, though, is as a religious zealot, he believed that Christ and Christianity was a threat to Judaism. Um, Who were the ones who brought Jesus to Pilate uh, to, to crucify him? Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, high priests. The religious folks wanted Jesus killed. And here we are, after Jesus died, rises again in the sins. Now Paul is actually taken over and he is the the most zealous, attempting to do all he can to kill Christians and to literally crush Christianity. Um, And again, this is familiar territory, I think, for both of you. Uh, If you go back a little bit to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. In Acts 7, we know Stephen was stoned. And do you remember what Paul was doing while Stephen was stoned? Oh, yeah, he oh, holding his coats. Yeah, holding his coats. Yeah, in Acts 7, 58. He wasn't throwing the stones, but he was the coat rack, um, giving hearty, hearty approval to the fact that Stephen was stoned. And he actually says that um, in, uh, I think, in, in chapter 8, verse 1, where, and, and, and Saul approved of his execution. You know, he approved of Stephen's death by stoning even though all Stephen was doing was giving him the gospel. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is Paul, again, before he he actually became a Christian ravaging the church, thinking Christianity is a threat to Judaism, and he was zealous for for all that he was doing. And it's not until Acts chapter nine, that, again, most of you are familiar with this, where where he's converted, where he comes to saving faith, where Jesus meets him on that road to Damascus. It's in Acts nine where Paul, it says in verse one, he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he goes to the high priest, he asks permission to go to Damascus, and arrest men and women and drag them back to Jerusalem so they might stand trial for the fact that they're Christians. This is, this is, he's a terrorist. You know, he's, he's ravaging men and women and hauling them off to prison and, and agreeing with them when they're killed simply because they believe in Christ. Uh, finally, Jesus meets him uh, on the road in verse three. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And he said, "Who are you, Lord?" He said, "I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting." And if we read all of Acts nine, we know that this is when Paul uh, recognized he's a sinner, recognized uh, how, how wrong he was for persecuting Christ and His church, and he comes to saving faith. And we find at the latter, in the middle part here, um, of him, what he described himself in Romans one how he was a chosen instrument in verse 15, that the Lord said to him, or go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Uh, this is a little snippet you know, of Paul. And what's so interesting is, think about his education and how, even though he wasn't a Christian, he was fully versed and fully schooled in the Old Testament. And then all of a sudden, now he's a Christian believer, and all of the Old Testament just comes to light for him. The very Jesus who he was persecuting, he now believes is the Messiah, is the one who is promised. And so, instead of persecuting Christians, now he's going back to those folks, those Jews, um, who he used to persecute Christians with, and he's saying, no, no, no. Uh, and he opens his Bible in the Old Testament and he proves to them that Jesus is the Christ. Now. When you've talked to your friends and neighbors and family members after you became a Christian and proved to them Jesus was the Christ, what kind of response have you gotten? Yeah. Not a very good one, always. You know, I was talking to someone today that he was saying that, uh, you know, that he, he hears of these stories where someone becomes a Christian and their, their dad does and their mom does and their brothers do. And, it's, and sometimes that happens. But for a lot of us, you become a Christian and, you, and it doesn't translate in the same way in your whole family. But when you think about the fact that he is now a believer and has such knowledge of the Old Testament, look at chapter 9, uh, verse 20, uh, uh, 20 uh, sorry, end of verse 19 in chapter 9. This is after, he, after he's a believer. For some days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. Which, of course, he would never said that before. And all heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? And Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And now, how would he have done that? Well, he probably went back, we've talked about before, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The very first promise of, of the fact that God was gonna send a redeemer, that someone was born from the woman, from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. We mentioned before um, um, Genesis 12, where God promised that one day a seed of Abraham is gonna come and is going to to, uh, be a blessing to all the nations. So he goes through his Old Testament and he explains, no, he is the Christ. He is the Christ confounding them and proving but uh, they, uh, if you went on further, they wanted to kill him and they had to escape from, from where he was. So, when we look at Romans and you see how much of the Old Testament that Paul uses to prove that Jesus is the Christ even to us and prove some of the doctrines that he does, it's again that God used his education that is now the, all the lights are on because the Holy Spirit lives in him. And and uh, and he and he uses that Old Testament background to our benefit in the in the long run. So that's Paul and his conversion, and now he's brand new in Christ. Um, anything that you could tell me that a little bit you may know about the culture of Rome in the first century, Roman culture, uh, easy to Google. You could or you could, if I have a book at home on it. Um, I have just a couple of quick sentences. Uh, the Roman Empire during the first century, uh, this one writer says, was brutal. It was a nasty disregard for human beings. Roman entertainment hardened the hearts of its citizens with theaters performing dramas that were vulgar and degrading. Roman arenas also scorched the soul, but with bloodshed rather than lewdness. You got a culture that's full of lewdness and full of bloodshed. Mm, sounds familiar. So, <laughs> <laughs> in what way? It's uh, America. I mean, our coliseums even look like they're yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we know we know entertainment's full of lewdness, um, and when you think of the bloodshed, I mean, the the, the ultimate fighting that's that's on some of the some of the things that's out there. Where it used to be an Olympic event where you're box, boxing with boxing gloves and have rules, now you're going in there bare knuckles and you're fighting almost to the death. I mean, yeah. until you tap out. You have a high tolerance of pain. You're not going to tap out, and and, uh, and again, we love that cage fighting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I know. Um, I mean, I've never lived in a where I grew up. I wasn't around ice and hockey and so on. But um, my mom told me my grandmother loved hockey because <laughs> she loved the fights. <laughs> she loved it when they took the gloves off. <laughs> you know, to uh, pound each other in the face until pull so much shirt over their head, beat them up. <laughs> <laughs> go grab, go grab, and go. You know. So the uh, and knowing that our culture is any different than the Roman culture just shows how much more that the Book of Romans will apply to us as we look into it and become more familiar with it. Because we are uh, not just the United States today, but at the end of the day, uh, there's nothing new in the sun. You know, in Genesis 6, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every imagination, the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was true in Genesis 6. It was true in the 1500s. It was true in the 2000s and it will always be true because of our depravity. And we get that explanation of all that from, from the book of Romans. So we know the culture was evil, uh, as all cultures are technically. Uh, the recipients are the, the church of Rome. Believers in the church of Rome if you look at chapter 1 of Romans now go to Romans for a minute Chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that um, the church seemed to be well-established and functional Uh, Paul writes in chapter 1 verse 8 First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world Uh, Obviously this church was established enough where there was a reputation that they had for faithfulness early on in their, in their history. And so Paul acknowledges that. Uh, we know from verse 13 that it was predominantly Gentile uh, as opposed to Jewish. In verse 13, I want you to know brothers that have often intended to come to you but thus far i have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Uh, of course, Rome was, uh, not, you know, was, was far away from Jerusalem, follow, far away from Israel. There would have been some Jews that lived there, but the church would have been predominantly Gentile. Um, and then we know that Paul had never been to Rome, at least at this point in his life. Uh, in verse 10, he writes, Always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, To strengthen you. Uh, Paul had never been to Rome. And yet he still wanted to minister to this church. uh, That he was actually writing to. Now what's interesting. I forgot to pass these out. But maybe Don can't real fast. Um, He he hadn't been to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome. uh, But we know. If you turn over to Romans 15 verse 20. um, uh, Romans 15 verse 20. One of Paul's desires was to never build upon, not build upon someone else's foundation. He would be something we'd consider as a missionary who wanted to reach unreached people groups. So if the gospel had already been somewhere, uh, Paul would say, well, the gospel's there, I wanna go somewhere else. And so because Rome had received the gospel, um, he wasn't necessarily wanting to go there to evangelize them he wanted to, to know them and impart a spiritual gift to them he wanted to, to be a blessing to them but we uh, we find out in, in Romans 15 verse uh, verse 20 Romans 15 verse 20 um, that um, I'll just pick it up kind of in, in midstream he says um, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Again, he wanted to reach unreached people groups. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who never heard will understand. Verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, And since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while." So look at your map here. Um, You got the, the, the right side of the Mediterranean Sea is Judea, which is where Israel was, which is where Jerusalem was. And then it's obvious Italy is shaped like a boot and then uh, the Mediterranean Sea is this whole area, and then you've got Spain that's way over west of of Italy and Rome. So Paul's desire was to get to Rome, uh, to fellowship with these Roman believers, and then eventually he wanted to sail on to Spain because they wanted the gospel to go further, and to think about them traveling on these little ships all through the Mediterranean, and and, and that was his desire. So uh, he wanted to go to Rome, Um, but not necessarily to evangelize them, but just as a platform to get to Spain. Now, the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome. And how did he get to Rome? Ship. Yeah, he got there on a cruise ship, didn't he? (laughs) Not exactly. Not exactly. (laughs) A couple of (laughs) them. Yeah, he got there in chains, in prison. He spent a couple years, and he continued to teach. Uh, He he wrote while he, he was in prison, and God still used him to his glory but it wasn't quite the trip he expected. A tradition tells, we don't know for sure, but tradition tells us that, that, that he was released after that imprisonment. The Acts 28 closes with him being still in prison. It's very likely that he got out of prison. He, many scholars think he made it to Spain and eventually a couple of years later uh, was uh, beheaded uh, under Nero's reign. So uh, he made—but well, we're not positive on that, but that's of his desire, uh, that he wanted to make it eventually to Spain. Now, the big question is, how on earth did the gospel get to Rome? You know, we don't have any record of it, really. How, how did the gospel get to Rome if Paul didn't bring it? As far as we know, Peter didn't make it. Uh, and we don't know, historically, if the other apostles uh, made it. Um, now Where I think is Peter buried then? Now, he's not buried in, in. He's not buried in the, underneath the Saint Peter uh, <laughs> Square, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> Maybe tradition tells us that. You know, but what uh, what so here, it? early in the in the history of the church, we have this Roman church that's thriving, seemingly without apostolic authority, in a sense. Uh, and you've got this letter that uh, that Paul's writing to uh, to be an encouragement to them, and. Um, I think I think the answer comes in Acts chapter two. So let's go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter two. Remember when Peter preached at Pentecost after the ascension of the Holy Spirit descended upon the believers there? Uh, at Pentecost, um, people would come from literally around the known world to to Jerusalem to be part of, of the celebration of the uh, uh, of what's taking place there and we know that uh, specifically there's several nations that are represented here as Peter preaches to them uh, for the first time. Uh, I'll pick it up in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, and Egypt, and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from where? Rome. Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, and so on. And, uh, and they were hearing about the mighty works of God in their own language. It's very likely, no one can prove this, that, that the gospel seed that went forward on this particular day at Pentecost, that many, got you know, we had 3,000 that became believers that day, uh, and they're from nations that were all over, and they scattered, and it very well could be that these folks brought the gospel to Rome, uh, even though they didn't know much of it at the time, and God may well have, have allowed it to grow just from those little gospel seeds. Um, Which actually, when you think of that, um, it's just a reminder that even in our lives, we should never underestimate the power of gospel seeds. You know, where you don't maybe say much, but you may have said something. And God uses His Word in the lives of people uh, in ways that we would never know. Who would ever thought for a moment that... A sermon at a particular time period with that many people that the gospel there could spread to wherever it went. Um, when I went to Ethiopia, uh, in, I think it was 2018, um, I still keep in touch with uh, uh, a friend named Gil, who's the, one of the training leaders of Training Leaders International. When COVID shut down their travel way back in February, March, he hasn't been back to the place where he has been mentoring pastors now um, for al- for almost a year, and they don't expect it to change uh, very quickly. And um, I, ta- I he e- sent an email out the other day, and one thing I've been praying for, and I think others have as well, is all of the work they've already done. They've, they've preached God's word, they've brought the word of God to these pastors, um, they've labored there, and now they're gone. And all you have left is these, the Word of God and these pastors who have learned some things. And in one sense, you could say, ah, it's gonna be a disaster. The thing's gonna fall apart. You know, it's never gonna make it to the next generation. But we all know that who builds the church? Mm-hmm. Christ builds his church. So he pulls out the the smart guys from Training These International, leaves the, the guys who don't have, quote unquote, the credentials and education, and the email he sent me one of the men who has graduated from their classes has just written a book on how to interpret the Bible and is ministering to the people there and one of the other men who uh, helped get Tre International to be there he's teaching classes on preaching and so the gospel continues to go forward you know so we should never underestimate uh, the power of those gospel seats because God's word is going to go uh, with or without our help and we all know that as well so I think that's a good possible possibility for, for how the Church of Rome, um, began. So we know that he eventually arrived at Rome, but it was in chains. Um, purpose of the book, um, the, uh, when you think of other books that Paul wrote, um, the book of Galatians was written specifically because the churches in Galatia were deviating from the gospel, they were leaving the gospel. They began to believe that um, circumcision saved you, works saved you, and Paul had to recalibrate them and, and know it's Christ crucified. Um, we've talked a lot about 1 Corinthians and some of the issues in the Corinthian church. Paul had labored there for a couple years and um, as he labored there, he knew the congregation and the congregation seemingly sent him letters asking questions. There were questions about marriage and questions about the Lord's Supper. And, and and they were telling him about some of the issues in the church in regards to morality and the divisions. I mean, Paul was really acquainted. And so both 1st and 2nd Corinthians are almost like he's answering questions that the church folks may have had. Well, Romans isn't like that at all. It's, it's just a theological treaty uh, about salvation. It's, isn't it more like he I mean, was teaching the righteousness of God towards man, yeah, absolutely, and exposing mankind's sin. Yeah, is basically what Romans sure. is about. I think a- absolutely. Yeah. You know, just it's it's just a it's a it's a the most thorough presentation of the gospel um, of of man's sin, Christ's righteousness and salvation in, in the entire in the entire Bible. I, I think you're right. In fact. Uh, uh, my reformation study by Luke's calls it the fullest and grandest, most comprehensive statements of the gospel. And uh, the Barnhouse writes, salvation for individual souls from any stage of sin, which is a, that's such a blessing. Salvation of souls from any stage of sin. And we know that we're gonna find out in, in Romans one, Paul is going to talk about the, the depravity and the sin In the lives of somebody who's a complete pagan and then as soon as you move into romans 2 if you're a religious self-righteous person you're hearing paul say that and you're saying yes lord get him those (laughs) wicked evil people and then he shows how evil and and wicked the religious person is and then he goes into chapter three and that's where we have and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god so by the time you get to the end of chapter three you know all the weight of sin is upon us and then he moves into how we're justified by Christ. And then Christ is the, is the, is the second Adam who fulfilled uh, the requirements that Adam failed to, to fulfill. And uh, all that is explained just in great detail. So, so helpful for us to understand the gospel. Um, so um, I'm gonna, the, the, in my Reformation Study Bible, uh, it, it says these are just some of the things that we'll touch upon. I'll read these fast sin, law, judgment, human destiny, faith, works, grace, justification, sanctification, election, the plan of salvation, the work of Christ, of the spirit, the Christian hope, the nature and life of the church, the place of the Jew and non-Jew in the purposes of God, the philosophy of church and world history, the meaning of the Old Testament message, the duties of Christian citizenship in the world, the principles of godliness and morality, among many other things. Romans is going to cover everything. Now, like I said, we might all be retired and and gone by the time we get to the end of it, but we'll do all we can to to work our way through it. It covers so much. And then lastly, I think the theme of Romans, and we'll go into more detail when we get there, is verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1. Uh, 16 and 17 of Romans 1. Um, Where Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And of course, that's the verse that Luther uh, was so struck with and that's what brought Luther, Luther to saving faith, that the righteous will live by faith. And here's an individual who lived his entire life uh, uh, trying to work his way into God's favor. And when he read that, it just it just uh, put him on his back, almost the way that light did to the apostle Paul. Um, so, with this as our theme, basically what we're going to be looking at and learning is um, it's going you know, the book's going to explain the gospel that that Christ is the good news uh, that he's the mediator between God and man, and he brings us into a right relationship with God. Uh, We just mentioned that uh, it's probably the most clear demonstration of our depravity and our sinfulness. Uh, It's going to show that salvation, as the verse says, is by the power of God and not by our own merit or by our own goodness. Uh, It's going to show that salvation is for everyone who believes. Uh, It's going to show that the gospel was first delivered to the Jews, but also for non-Jews. And how the righteousness of God is revealed... Um, and I think I see that kind of in two ways. You know, one way the righteousness of God is revealed is through His character and His holiness and, his, and the fact that we can't approach Him without a holy and righteous sacrifice. So on one hand, it's going to show the righteousness of God that we can't attain. But it also shows the righteousness of God in Christ who for us attained what we cannot attain. As Jesus fulfills what the first Adam failed to fulfill, uh, and he indeed lived that righteous life for us on our behalf, and we put our faith and trust in him, then we become righteous in God's sight as well. Um, so, uh, And then it also showed that our salvation comes by faith, not by works. And then that last phrase there, that, that uh, in verse uh, 17, the righteous will live by faith, uh, even the rest of our Christian life. Uh, is going to be by faith as well. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of just a brief introduction. Um, If you uh, take a little bit of time and uh, start reading through a a little bit, it'll take us a while to get through chapter one, but we'll go ahead and and start to venture out next week. And uh, any thoughts, questions, concerns, comments? So I look, look forward to this. If, if, uh, I, I'm, I'm really grateful that, uh, that we'll be poking through here for a while. I think it's gonna be a benefit to, at least, I know for, for, for me it's gonna be super helpful. So I hope it'll be helpful for everybody. Sure. Yeah. So, good.